Welcome to Girl is a Game, the podcast by women for everyone in partnership with CLNS Media, sponsored by Baseball Barbecue. As always, we're your hosts, Gabrielle, founder of Girl at the Game, and Al of Nesson, and we have the most epic guest for you today. He is one of the faces of New England Sports Network, where Al works, and was already the perfect guest to have on when the Red Sox are coming back this week. And then we all woke up this morning to the news that Mookie Betts is going to sign a deal with the Dodgers long-term, so it makes it even more perfect in a twisted way. Please welcome Tom Karen, a.k.a. TC. TC, thanks for being our guest. Oh, thanks for having me on. Couldn't couldn't we do it when there was, like, good news? You know, when they were signing somebody or... I don't remember yeah. what good news is. <laughs> You're, you'll have uh, yeah, to, you'll there, have to there explain it. Been a lot of it. This is 2020. <laughs> we don't get a lot of good news. I guess we should be used to it. Not at all. So, I mean, we obviously have to start by talking about the Mookie bomb that dropped this morning. I did not see this coming. I didn't think we would be having to face this reality for a couple of months. You know, it's funny because I, I thought I did see it coming back in spring, back in spring training in February. I talked to a lot of people who told me that the Dodgers, from, from the moment Mookie hit the ground out there, were, were really doing the full court press. Uh, that they were, you know, whining and dining him and showing him life uh, on the Pacific and, and what it could be to be the face of the Dodgers and, you know, all of that. And I said, wow, that's going to be hard for anybody to say no to. But then I thought, you know, Mookie has always seemed committed to reaching free agency. So I thought it would get done just not till later in the season. I, I didn't think he would do something before the season began. Well, then the pandemic hit. And all we talked about was how guys like, like Mookie were not going to have the market. Uh, we're not going to get the kind of money they thought they were. In fact, I had just read something after the game late last night. I forget who had written it, but somebody on the national uh, baseball beat had said, you know, a guy like Mookie's probably going to have to sign a one or two year deal until the economy comes back. So, you know, we'll find out when they officially announce things. I, I just think the Dodgers, probably use this to their advantage. You know, Mookie was hearing the same things we heard. His agent's hearing the same things we hear. And that is the money's not there. The market's not there. There's going to be a correction. There's going to be a dip. So if you're the Dodgers, why not jump in and say, listen, here's the deal right now. You don't have to worry about the economy. You don't have to worry about the pandemic. And, and Mookie'd be crazy not to sign it. So from a strictly Dodgers perspective, uh, it makes a lot of sense to get this done now. Uh, you get a little boost going into the season. You create a little buzz with the fans. just makes a lot of sense. So from the Red Sox perspective, now fans can't help but wonder, you know, was there a deal to be made here? We were led to believe he was going to go to free agency. He didn't go to free agency. He signed a deal. The thing I say is the problem is there just was really no way to sign him without it costing a buck seventy-five on the dollar because they were in that highest – tax threshold category they would have been paying a 75 percent tax so a 400 million dollar deal becomes a 700 million dollar deal and that's a ridiculous amount of money for anybody there's plenty of blame to go around why Mookie's not here but I think you got to go back in time the, the the mistakes the Red Sox made were not clearing up money over the past few years with an eye towards getting a Mookie deal done and and you could talk about the price deal you could talk about the sale deal when we probably knew he was injured at the time he signed that. Uh, other deals of, of a smaller degree, the, the Steve Pierce and Nathan Evaldi deals last year, you know, all of that money could have probably been cobbled together to offer Mookie the deal he's signing now, but instead they gave it to other players and didn't have enough left to get it done. It's really unfortunate. And I, I was hearing the same things as you because I used to live in LA and I, I know some people at the Dodgers and I even got the text from one of them this morning being like, it's it's real, it's really happening. And it, it hurt, especially because it really was avoidable. And I basically feel like we're living in the second round of John Lester right now. And it's like, you learned nothing from this entire situation. <laughs> I think that Mookie though, because like you said, the Dodgers were on him to get an extension from the jump. And Ken Rosenthal suggested a little while ago that these extension talks really began heavily in the spring. And to me, that kind of does, though, cast aspersions on Mookie's repeated claims that he always planned on testing free agency. Because 
if he was willing, he was, he said so many times last year, I'm not talking about deals during the season. I'm not doing it. I'm testing free agency. And if people want to talk to me during the off season, they can, I'm not doing this during the baseball season, which is fine. I admire him for wanting to be focused on baseball during baseball. But if he always planned on testing free agency, he wouldn't have entertained the Dodgers to the extent that I have heard that he did. And he's not saying the same things. And obviously no one could have foreseen the pandemic. And I definitely think that the impact of the pandemic on sports played a role in his decision to take this deal that we're hearing about. But it also seems more and more like he just didn't want to stay in Boston because he refused to talk with the Red Sox for a long time. And he seemed pretty open to talking with a team he hadn't even played a single game for. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I don't believe he would have stayed in Boston. And I, he's never told me that. And I've talked to him plenty about it over the years he was here. I don't think he hated it in Boston. Some people have sort of suggested he was really unhappy here. I don't think that's the case. I think he was fine here. I, I don't think he hated Boston. I just don't think he loved it. And I don't think Boston meant any more to him as a home than any other place would. Uh, I actually always thought that the Atlanta Braves would be a landing spot for him, uh, you know, being a Tennessee guy and being from the South. Uh, they were building a new ballpark. If I were the Braves, I would have put a big push, but he never got to the free agency, so we'll never know. But I, I think at the end of the day, the Red Sox would have had a chance to keep him in free agency only by overpaying him and paying him considerably more than anybody else. I think he was going to go to free agency. I think he was going to take the best available offer. And unless it was markedly less than the Red Sox, it was not going to be Boston. I think they realized that. You know, one thing I'll say is you said it's like John Lester 2.0. The difference is, you know, they, they waited so long and, and let that get dragged out so badly. Um, they kind of moved a little quicker, at least it feels like it, with Mookie. I actually said last year that I thought they should have traded him at the trade deadline. Uh, I think they would have gotten more for him a year and a half and giving him to a player, a team that was uh, in a playoff contention. If you remember, they went on whatever that, that crazy little run was where they run, they won like seven out of eight. They took two out of three from the Yankees and swept the Rays and then won another three against the Yankees. And it all happened in the 10 days leading up to the, the trade deadline. Uh, a year they didn't ago make this a week. move. Yeah, a year ago this week. And, and they didn't make a move because of that. And then I think they lost eight in a row right after that. And that was, you know, when Dave Dombrowski said at the time, he said, you know, I, I, I got caught up in thinking we were going to do something, and so I didn't dismantle the team. And he could have. A week earlier, he might have. And it might have been Mookie Betts. And people would have freaked out then. But I think it would have been easier to take last July because I think you would have gotten more for it. In the end, you know, we'll see what they got. I like Verdugo. He can play. We'll see about the other two prospects. Uh, you know, you didn't get any pitching back and you lost David Price. As it turns out, Price opts out. Uh, but that was all to get under the salary cap, which, uh, you know, the, 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 it's not a cap, but it's a threshold, as we know. So and there's just so much that goes into this. And, and I think I think Lester would have actually been an easier guy to get signed because there was so much that went into this. But you're right, it hurt. And he really wanted to stay, John Lester, which is not the vibe I got from Mookie, but I still... Right. I think Mookie was insulted in 2018 after they won the World Series when he was the reigning MVP. I think he was insulted by the lowball offer that they offered him first, like the 227 year deal or something. Because, I mean, he deserved more than that. And when he said no, I think that kind of played a role in Dombrowski offering Sale and Evaldi and Pierce those deals because Mookie said no. But I, I just, I still think either they should have traded him last season. Or they shouldn't have traded him at all. And if they still had him right now, I think he would have been more susceptible to a deal. Yeah, well, certainly, yeah. With the pandemic, I think that would have factored in. And, and you're right about it. You know, a lowball offer, even if it's the beginning of a negotiation, can turn the whole thing sideways. It's exactly what happened with Lester. Uh, you want to go back. Uh, I'm old enough to, to remember you go back to Nomar. It's exactly what happened with Nomar. Uh, he actually came back and, and wanted the deal they had offered, and by then they had taken it off the table. But originally he thought it was insulting. I think it was four years, 60 at the time. You know, Mookie's a confident guy. I mean, he's just, 
you know, anybody who, uh, who, who throws a bowling ball and turns around before it hits the pins and knows it's a strike, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the villain walking away from the exploding building in, in every movie. Mookie's a confident guy, and he was never going to take something because he was worried about his performance. He always believed that he was going to be able to perform in a contract year as it have to do that now because they're he's getting the offer and, and the pandemic probably did lead him to grab the security and, and a little time in LA probably led him to realize he's happy there and good for him, bad for the Sox. We'll see how it all plays out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you wanted him to potentially entertain the idea of coming back, you shouldn't trade him to Los Angeles right off the bat, I feel like, because for an athlete, for someone rich and famous, what's better than that? Because the spotlight's not really on you, but you're going to get a crowd every night. You're going to put together a competitive team most years. So maybe we trade him to a more crappy team next time we produce some homegrown talent that will be worthy of a contract like that, right? Yeah, you know, it is interesting because I I just don't think there was a market. And that's what's hard to believe still is there just weren't a lot of teams who were willing to give up a lot to get one year of Mookie. And that's what this came down to. And they got, listen, they wound up probably getting less in terms of prospects by including price, but that was to get rid of the money, you know, which is ironic because now price isn't even going to play this year. They looked at that as a two-part trade and Mookie wasn't a salary dump. Mookie was trying to get something in return for a valuable asset that they were afraid they would lose for nothing in a year. Uh, And then there was the David price component, which was absolutely just getting right. I mean, they're paying half a salary anyway. And it was just to get rid of his salary and to get under the payroll tax so that they could next year start to, to rebuild this team in the way High and Bloom wants it. Yeah, it's uh, it's frustrating, especially since they didn't get any pitching for Price and Mookie. I mean, I, I agree with you. They wanted out of that albatross of a David Price contract, but at the same time, they're still paying half of it. So it's not like they really got out of that. I just find it so crazy how this team has fallen so far so fast from 2018. It almost feels like a different lifetime, a completely different team. And then you look around and it's still JD and Xander and Rafi and Eduardo Rodriguez, like Benintendi, they're still there, but it just doesn't, it doesn't feel the same without Mookie. And a lot of people have been making the comparisons to 1918 and Babe Ruth. I'm curious, do you think this is our generation's Babe Ruth? I don't. Uh, I, I'm not a big believer in curses. Listen, there's a lot to build around here. And, and we thought last night, I mean, it, the team's going to hit the ball. Uh, they're not going to pitch. And Mookie's not a pitcher. And that's the problem. Even with Mookie back this year. See, here I said this in the winter. And again, now let's – any projections, any any predictions are out the window because who knows what a 60-game sprint is going to look like and, and teams might be hit with positive test results. I mean – there's just no way to predict what's going to happen over the next two months, okay? But, but rewinding to January, February, if you look at fan graphs, if you look at, at some of the websites that do the predictions and the projections, the Red Sox with Mookie were projected as a team that would fight for the second wild card spot. You know what they were projected as without Mookie Betts? A team that would fight for the second wild card spot. This wasn't a championship team with him. It wasn't a championship team without him. Now, that was before Chris Sale went down, and that's a whole other problem. It has nothing to do with Mookie. When you lose Chris Sale for the year, now you're probably not over a full season battling for a playoff spot. So, I don't know. I know there's outrage about the Mookie thing, but from a purely baseball perspective, looking at where High and Bloom was when he inherited this team, I think they did what they could do. You trade him, and you start to rebuild, understanding that next year you'll have money to spend because you'll be back and you will have reset the tax. They need pitching. And if you want to talk about what they're dealing with uh, as far as this team falling from the heights of 2018, it comes back to one thing and one thing only. They have been unable to draft and develop pitching for the last 20 years. I mean, it would name, you know, when's the last time they had a guy who was drafted and developed through the Red Sox system and became an every, you know, fifth day starting pitcher? I can't think of anybody. Uh, Lester. Right? I mean, has it been that long? There's nobody on this staff. I I think it's just Lester and Rich Hill. Well, there you go. Right. Rich Hill (laughs) left and had to come back. 
and you know, I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez, they traded for at the double A level and, 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 and developed him, but they didn't draft him. You got to draft pitching somewhere along the lines. You got to draft pitching. They've done a pretty good job with relievers. You know, say, you know, there's ups and downs with all relievers, but Barnes and Workman have proven to be pretty good relievers. Uh, and, and we'll see some of the younger guys, Darwin's and Hernandez and where guys like that go. But uh, it, there's no starting pitching that has come up through the system. And that has to change because this team with, with Bogart, you know, Bogart's the face of this franchise now. He's, he's the leader of this team. And endeavors over to his side, uh, you got a pretty good one-two punch. J.D. Martinez, if he opts out, then, you know, things change. But if he's around for the next couple of years, and he'll be around this year, uh, we know what he can do. Uh, Chavis, I think he's going to be a player. Verdugo slots in well with this lineup. I think Benintendi has a bounce-back year because I think he's better than he was last year. So there's, there's a lineup here that a lot of teams would love to have. you just got to get some pitching. And they're a long way from having pitching. I think we really saw that in a nutshell last night with the first exhibition game. I mean, you kind of took my next question about like this team really does still have offense with that lineup building this rebuild around guys like Bogart's endeavors. And now, um, I mean, do you think this is what we're going to see game in and game out until Eduardo gets back into this rotation and we can at least maybe pull off two solid performances with our first two guys in the rotation? You know, it's funny. I don't think you'll see what happened last night very often because I actually think the bullpen's better than uh, than we saw last night, certainly. Uh, I don't know that, you know, it'd be interesting to, to, and we don't get to go to the ballpark, so I'll have to wait for my next Zoom session. But uh, what Ron Renicky says about how he handled the bullpen last night, because – you know, Workman in the eighth and Brazier in the ninth, I don't think that's the way it's going to play out during the season. Uh, Workman's going to be the closer. Workman looked good last night, so that was good. He needed a confidence builder because he's been struggling. Uh, Barnes gave up the home run, and then, you know, Brazier was a mess in the ninth. But I don't think Brazier's going to be in the ninth very often. Uh, the encouraging thing last night is Ryan Weber looks good. He actually looked really good. He gave up that two-run home run to Rowdy Telez, but, my God, Rowdy Telez just destroyed Red the Red Sox killer, historically. Play. My goodness. Rowdy Telez had 21 home runs last season, and seven of them were against the Red Sox, including at yeah. least one multi-homer game. And, and you just look at that, and you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, he's got an OPS at Fenway Park of like 1,500. It's the most yeah. ridiculous thing. And now, again, he's been around two years with seven games. But it's, yeah, there's a, I mean, way back, there's always guys, you know, certi- I always call them certified Red Sox killer. You got a certified Red Sox killer in, uh, in Rowdy Telez. And, you know, you go back over time, there's always these sort of obscure guys who just destroy the Red Sox. You know, I remember Frank Catalanato is the name that always pops into mind. I, I, really a nobody who hung around Toronto and Texas and uh, would just hit like 380 against the Red Sox and, and 220 against everybody else. Uh, so anyway, point is, Ryan Weber pitched pretty well, and that's a huge development. I, I think the bullpen's going to be okay. I, the starting pitching is the question mark. With you know, you're going to have Vivaldi on, on Friday. Martin Perez, uh, you know, this guy's a 13-year pro veteran. Uh, his numbers have never been great, but he's had two-month stretches where he's pitched well. 60 games into the season last year. He had, a, I think it was a 7-2 and two record and a really low ERA. So to get that 60 games out of him, now you got a number two. Then Erod comes back. I, I think you'll see him sooner rather than later. My guess is you'll probably see Erod pitching in a, like a two-inning type of situation uh, against the Yankees that uh, second weekend of the season. Because uh, I don't think they'll wait to stretch him out. I think you'll start throwing him in for two, three innings as soon as you can. But after that, all bets are off. Ryan Weber, again, he's got to be like, he's got to be Greg Maddox. You know, he hit 90 once last night out of 80 something pitches. Uh, but he throws, you know, he only threw three fastballs last night. There's a changeup, cutter, slider, this, that, everything, inside, outside, make it move, add, subtract. And, and if he's doing that, he can keep hitters off balance. And then you can have an opener. And now you went out and got Zach Godley, who pitches tonight. We'll keep an eye on him, but he just got let go by the Tigers. And then, uh, Covey, who they signed last night, he's six and twenty-nine lifetime with an ERA of six point something, and they just grabbed him, which shows you how desperate they are for pitching right now. So, the offense is there; they're going to mash the ball. They're going to have to win. They lost eight to six last night. They're going to have to win a bunch of eight to six games this year. The starting rotation is the biggest problem for this team, and I agree with you about Brazier and Workman. 
I was watching the game last night and it just kind of felt like awful deja vu. So many games in 2019 started out with a 2018 vibe of scoring early, scoring often. But then after the fifth or sixth inning, the offense would just kind of go to sleep. And the problem with this team's pitching is that that can't happen. But I don't know if it's just that Renicky was trying things out last night to make sure that they really didn't work before trying them out in a regular season game, or if it was just forgetting that Ryan Brazier had terrible eighth and ninth inning ERA numbers last year, because I looked at them and then I really wished I hadn't looked at them. But I'm curious what you think. Just talk to us about the new pitchers, because it's not a great sign when the Tigers don't think they should keep you. You know, these are the kind of guys that Haim Bloom brought into Tampa Bay and turned into serviceable pitchers. You know, so it, it's it, this is going to be very different from what we're used to, right? We've been, For the last few years, we've watched Dave Dombrowski overpay for the best talent available on the market. Think about how the Tampa Bay Rays have succeeded, and they have succeeded over the last 15 years with Bloom being a part of that. You pick up guys on the margin. You maybe give them different roles. Now, in these two cases, right, Godley, supposedly it was a little bit of a money thing in Detroit, and they wanted – they were actually being doing right by him, letting him go early. He probably would have made the team, I've heard. But they wanted to give him a chance to land with another team, and they know they're not going anywhere. So he would have left at the end of the year. So whatever. The Kobe thing, the guy's got a career two point six something ERA at Triple A. Every now and again, Chris Colabello will come out of nowhere after years in the minors and suddenly have two great years in the majors. That's the hope, right? I mean, that's the upside. The, 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 the downside is he is what he is, the guy with a six and a half ERA in the majors and uh, only six wins to 29 losses. The wins and losses don't really matter as a pitcher anymore. We know that for evaluation purposes. But I just, you know, we'll see what they do. You know, maybe these guys were, were – he was primarily a starter with the White Sox the last couple of years. Maybe you're just getting a couple innings of, out of him in the pen. Uh, you're leaning on him a little less. Uh, we'll see. Uh, but, again, there, make no mistake, this year is about trying to patch it together, trying to get under the salary tax for next year, the competitive balance threshold tax for next year. So that, uh, so that they can spend some money and, and rebuild this team the way they want. But for now, you know, their hope is, listen, it's a 60-game crapshoot. Uh, ESPN did all their projections, and they had them at 30-and-a-half wins. So they got them as a 500 team, but they had 17 teams within three games of that, which means just about everybody's probably going to be in the wild card hunt until the final week or two of the season. And, and unless things go really sideways, I think the Red Sox probably will be in that. Uh, so I, you know, I, I wouldn't worry about Godley or 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 Covey because I don't think those guys are any part of the long-term fix here. I think they're just patching it up to get through, while they hope, you know, a Jake Room, a Tanner Houck, some of the young prospects. Because finally, after a couple of years, and again, I, I'm not criticizing Dave Dombrowski. He did what they asked him to. He won a World Series. I got, I got, you know, I got to ride a duck boat because Dave Dave Dombrowski came to town and and went all in and won a championship. Okay, that's great, but it's not sustainable. You can't just keep overspending and going above the top level of the the CBT. So Bloom is going to come in and start to tweak it, but after all those years of Nebraska trading away the prospects, over the last few years, they've started to rebuild. They're they're high-end prospects, high-level, triple-A-level prospects are not there yet. They're single-A, double-A, especially on the pitching side, are starting to move up. They've They've gone from dead last in the uh, farm system rankings to about 20th right now, so that's progress. And some of these guys, probably as soon as next year, are going to start popping up on the major league team and helping out. We may not be at the ballpark this year, but we're still celebrating opening day with the grill on in the backyard. If you like the smoke and flame of the grill as much as you love pitchers serving up high heat, Baseball Barbecue has the perfect customizable grill tools for fans. Their patented baseball bat handles replicate actual wood bat dimensions to give Baseball Barbecue's tools the familiar feel of a well-made baseball bat. And the stainless steel grill tools bring more features than a five-tool player. For food prep, Baseball Barbecue offers handcrafted maple and walnut cutting boards made in partnership with U.S.-made bat maker McDougal & Sons Bat Company, as well as t-shirts and hats to show your passion for America's two great pastimes. 
And for a limited time, Baseball Barbecue is offering listeners of Girl at the Game 15% off their entire order right now by entering the code GATG15 at checkout. So if you're outfitting your grill and kitchen or shopping gifts for the ultimate baseball fan, go to BaseballBBQ.com to pick up your baseball grill gear today. That's code GATG15 at BaseballBBQ.com. It's stressful, but at the same time, it's kind of like if this was going to happen better now than in a season where it's 162 games, because you're going to have people who say it's only 62 games. This season doesn't even count. You're going to have other people that say this season is really unique. And so whoever wins the World Series is going to be really impressive. It's going to be something like we've never experienced before. But either way, it's a weirdly a good time for the Red Sox to just have pretty much nothing going for them on the pitching side. We only have to watch it for about 60 games. Well, yeah, you know, you know who's going to say this is a special year and you've got a chance to do something special? The teams that win. Uh, the teams that go to the World Series are going to say, this is an unforgettable experience. What a year to do something special. And the teams that stink are the teams who are going to say, well, this year didn't matter. So I think, uh, you know, that's going to be revisionist history wherever this ends up. Uh, but, uh, you know, listen, it is different. I mean, we've never seen anything like this. You know, it's never been a baseball season where on July 23rd, all 30 teams are tied for first. I mean, there are bigger problems in the world than team bullpens. Okay, we know that. And this is all escapism. But, you know, for the next two months, and hopefully, I mean, that's the other thing, hopefully they're able to keep playing this through 60 games. But, but you know, you hope that each night you'll be able to, you know, last night for, for two hours and 52 minutes, we get to sit down and pretend like things were normal and watch a baseball game at Fenway Park and bitch about the bullpen. That, that was a nice feeling. It's been a while since we've been able to do something like that. So I'll take whatever it is. Uh, you know, the broadcasts are different. The games are different. But uh, I, I think we're all ready for the, uh, for the distraction. Absolutely. Uh, I know it felt so good. It felt like for the first time since the Michael Jordan documentaries, we were as a, as a society or a subculture, as you could say, of sports fans, like for all of us to sit down and live tweet something again across different yeah, the markets. Communal, right. The communal feeling, right. That you were tweeting about the same thing I was watching in real time. You know, you don't get that from Netflix, right. You don't get that from, from Hulu when you're, when you're streaming, whatever it is you're streaming and I'm watching something else. Last night we were all sort of watching it together. And, and let's remember as we all overreact to the bullpen co- collapse, it was a spring training game. In normal times, that game would have been played at Fort Myers and we would not have cared about the outcome. So it's hard to say that because I'm trying to get people to watch tonight. But the, the truth of it is, these games don't mean anything. Talk to me Friday when, when we see how Renicky uses the bullpen and we get going for real. Absolutely. I mean, that being said, you're one of the lucky members of the media. I know uh, us on the digital side over at Nesson. I'm not going to probably sniff Fenway for a very long time, if at all, this season. I know I'm not going to sniff Gillette, probably. Uh, you've been able to be at Fenway, if I'm not mistaken, right? What's What's it been like to be back with the safety measures? And then also, what's the plan for you guys this season from the broadcasting standpoint? Yeah, I've been to Fenway quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. I doubt I will be back for even a moment the rest of the season. Actually, I might get there tomorrow. We'll see what time the workout is. But uh, you know, they've done a nice job. I mean, a lot of teams had trouble early with their testing and some of their protocols. The Red Sox have had a really slick operation. The players feel great about it. Uh, so they've done a nice job keeping them safe and making them feel confident that, that this can happen. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the broadcast end of it, now we're all here. I'm, I'm standing outside the, the Nesson studios right now and, and, you know, inside in one room or, Dave O'Brien and Jerry Remy and Dennis Eckersley, where they call the game in studio, watching it on TV, just like everybody at home. And uh, Steve Lyons and Jim Rice are in another room where they're going to join me for pre and post. And on other nights, Jack and Brick will be next door calling the Bruins game in another studio. And Dale Arnold and, 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 and Barry Peterson and Andrew Raycroft and Billy Jaffe will all be in another room doing the pregame and postgame. So we're all stumbling all over each other, which is kind of funny, but – uh, none of us are at the game, so it's all it's all very different for those of us who are used to being at the game every night. How do you feel about that? Are you are you ready for a switch up, or do you like the hecticness of like setting up shop for the pre and post show there on Jersey Street and all the hype around? Yeah, it? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I miss the crowds, obviously. You know, when we're out on Jersey Street, it's like, you know, somebody once said way back that it, that it's, you know, baseball's version of, of college game day uh, on Saturday mornings. Where there's just a huge <laughs> crowd that. behind you. It's, yeah, it's, it's just such a great environment. Nobody else has that. What we have on Jersey Street at Fenway, uh, you know, Utah Street, the, uh, the, the Larry Lucchino actually built that at uh, Camden Yards down in Baltimore. It's close. Uh, but but our stage, our position there is is just so cool. So yeah, absolutely miss that. And I know I know uh, uh, Rem and and Eck and and Ob all miss being at the game because you can see so much more. But listen, this is all about getting through this year. We'll be back there next year, and uh, it's just you know it's it's strange, but it's all strange, right? Everything is strange right now. So uh, it just no surprise that uh, that that baseball is being done differently as well. Totally. I mean, I know I've been privy to be to get to sit in those rooms with you guys and watch the game back when Eck was on the pregame show a lot more and doing less broadcasting. But one of my favorite parts of last night was just listening to Dennis Eckersley on the broadcast say three run Johnson for the first time in a long time. Uh, I'm <laughs> that wondering. Is, that is, nothing makes you feel more like we're back in the season than a three run Johnson. Right? Oh, and he was in mid season form last night too. All the guys were in the booth. Like you could just tell everyone was so genuinely happy to be back. But um, I'm wondering what some of your favorite Eckisms are. <laughs> You know, the funny thing about Eck, and, and, you know, I mean, you were with us uh, in the legendary Nesson Green Room for a lot of those games. And, and you know, it's uh, he's just so funny because he doesn't really like – when people laugh about his, his lingo, he doesn't really like it because that's just how he speaks. Like, none of it is done for reaction. None of it is done for entertainment. He's just – he's always spoken that way. And, and the great thing about Eck is – and I don't say this – as a negative, it's all about Eck. So, you know, he created the term walk-off. When he was a pitcher in Oakland, he was the first to ever talk about a walk-off home run. But that to him, surprise me at all. that meant the pitcher was walking off the mound in shame. You know, a walk-off yeah, I heard was a that. horrible <laughs> thing. You know, and, and, you know, now it's become this great celebration walk-off. And, and my favorite, my favorite Eckism, though, is when he talks about branch work, which branch work means – you know, you're stuck up in the tree and you're clinging for dear life and the branches underneath you are cracking. And that's, you know, like when a pitcher is towards the end of his career and he's really struggling and he's out there on the mound and there's a guy on second and third and he gets out of it because the guy makes an unbelievable play on a line drive and doubles up the runner to get out of the inning. Like that's branch work. The branches are cracking. You should have fallen, but you managed to stay up there. But he says that all the time. You know, he says, yeah, well, there's this branch work going on. And people have no idea what he's talking about. Uh, a friend of mine who's a comedian, Jimmy Dunn, uh, a while back now, actually did an Eck app, which features the Ectionary. So you can actually plug in whatever Eck said, and it will transcribe it into English for you to explain what he meant. So uh, we, we all need an Ectionary by our side every once in a while. There's a Twitter account. The best thing about the Eck app, though, is you can you can Eck yourself, which is you take a picture and the mustache and hair shows up on you. So we can all look like Dennis Eckersley, at least virtually for a day. But, yeah, there's been – I mean, there's there's Twitter feeds about him. They did it when he was doing TBS in the, in the playoffs. They used to bring up, like, the Eckism of the day. They I mean, That's great. I mean, but he was like that as a player. You know, he threw a no-hitter when he was really young, pitching for the Cleveland Indians. Have you ever seen the video? He's pointing at the guys in the dugout. Like, get out here. You're next. Get, and the great thing is, Jerry Remy, it was the, the Indians against the Angels. Jerry Remy was on the Angels. And Jerry Remy was on deck when he got the final out of the no-hitter. And Remy's like, you know, I was going to break it up, but I never got the chance. But it's just, you know, that's act. Like, he'll point. When he was on the mound as a pitcher, he was incredible. I mean, he would get this. This video once, Ron Washington, who later went on to manage the uh, the Texas Rangers, uh, he, he – uh, he was at the plate, and X struck him out to end the game. And X turned around, like, looking back at Centerfield celebrating while Ron Washington is charging the mound because he was pissed off at something he had done. And the catcher's holding him back. So, like, all hell's breaking loose back towards the mound. And X has no idea because he's looking back at Centerfield celebrating. Uh, he was the best uh, as a pitcher. And, 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 Alex, you know, you were – I mean, he's as great as a pitcher as he was. He's an even better human being. I mean, he's just – what you hear on the TV broadcast is who he is. He's just genuine. He loves the game. Like when we would do post game shows together, he would 
call me the next morning. Like, man, did you go home and watch that Seattle-Oakland game? I was like, no. No, I didn't go home and watch it. <laughs> Why did you? You know, because he would just – he can't stop. He loves the game. He'll watch it 24-7, and he really cares about the game, which makes him a cut above most analysts. I think he's really special that way because he just – not only does he clearly love baseball so much and he tells such funny stories during his broadcast, but also just because he doesn't – not only does he have his echisms, but he also kind of doesn't have a filter. I mean, you hear a lot of people in the booth – not necessarily for the Red Sox, like, but just around the league, they'll be like, well, that was one heck of a home run. Gee, golly. Like, they kind of feel very barbershop quartet in the 1950s, like, <laughs> towing the company line. And I just doesn't give a crap. He'll be like, that guy sucks. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he's so, he's so guttural. The reaction is so sincere. If you watch the, the Derek Fisher home run in the ninth inning off Ryan Brazier last night, you know, as soon as he hits it, uh, David Bryant hasn't even called the home run yet, and you hear Eck, oh, you know, and he's yep. always groaning and moaning. And that was the famous, you know, when he said yuck, when they were showing yep. uh, Erod's line in the minors, that's what David Bryant got upset about, which led to their whole thing on the plane. Yep. I was, I was going to say that, uh, I mean, that was such a funny moment, because when I first heard about it, I was like, wait, so all he said was the word yuck? This whole situation came from one pretty accurate and not super mean word. I mean, I, I like there have been plenty of yuck Red Sox pitching moments over the past year, and I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of them this season. And it's just, I mean, it just makes the game better, I think, when you don't have people trying to sugarcoat everything. Because if you're watching the Red Sox play the way that they unfortunately sometimes do, you don't want the people in the booth calling the game to be like trying to convince you that what you're seeing is good when it's objectively not. I mean, I, that just makes it kind of insulting, yeah, you, I think. You can't, yeah, you can't get away with that here. And, and we're lucky because, you know, listen, we got the same ownership as the team. We're not owned by the team. We're owned by the same ownership. Uh, but they've never tried to suggest that we BS our way through because they know you can't do it here. The, the fans are too sophisticated you know, people like you are watching every pitch and paying attention to everything. And uh, we'd get called out left and right. I mean, it, you know, we don't go overboard. We don't become talk radio screaming and yelling about people and, and personal things. I don't think that's the role of a pregame, postgame anyway. But if you watch our studio, you know, Steve Lyons can be as critical as anybody in this town. Eck, you just said, Jerry Remy has always called it like it is. If a guy stinks, he'll say he stinks. You know, it's funny. It's John Flaherty, who, who now is a yes uh, broadcaster with the Yankees, uh, but finished his career with the Yankees, caught with the Red Sox early in his career. Uh, he tells me a story once where back in the day, uh, Red Sox-Yankees, uh, and, and we were on the postgame show. I remember the show, too. It was, it was uh, I, I don't remember the year. I believe it was 04. And we were on postgame talking, Eck and I are talking about how they left chilling in too long. And Eck says something about, you know, that's why the last guy got fired, leaving Pedro in too long. And meantime, they're watching this in the Yankees clubhouse after the game, the Yankees won. And, and Joe Torrey's walking by the screen and Joe Torrey stops and watches for a couple minutes and he turns to player and he goes, wait, that's the Red Sox postgame show, isn't it? And he's like, yeah, he goes, man, they're a lot harsher than our guys and walks away. And I've always taken that as the ultimate compliment. You know, we don't, we're not harsh to be harsh, but we're not going to sugarcoat it. So you just saw the game. I can't tell you, you know, we came on last night and the first thing we talked about is Brazier giving it up and, and, and Barnes giving up the home run because we can't, you know, it's funny. Our producer's like, well, maybe we shouldn't start with that. If they, no, as long as I'm doing this, we're always going to show you what happened and break it down objectively because that's what our viewers deserve. And that you can tell they appreciate it. I mean, it's funny you just brought up that David Price scenario with Dennis Eckersley, because if you look at the Red Sox fans, they were jumping to support Eck, not necessarily David right. Price. And I right. mean, I think it's just funny that Nesson in general over the years, going back to like your Hazel Mays, I mean, you've been at Nesson as long, I think, I think you started the year after I was literally born. So, but um, just guys like Gary Streisky too, like a lot of really fan favorites get hired there to be on these broadcasts. And I mean, Boston loves their sports so much. What's it feel like to have 
such a dedicated viewership that holds you accountable like that. I mean, you would never well, get that. That's the best. Market. Yeah. When I, I got hired and I, you know, I'm old, I've been doing this a long time. And when I first started this business, you know, one of my news directors at a TV station said, the worst thing you can be in this business is irrelevant. And there's a lot of towns where baseball and, and really sports are irrelevant, uh, except for the occasional team that gets everybody's attention and sports and, and the Red Sox are never irrelevant in Boston. So uh, landing here, I'm a kid from Maine. I'm from New England. Uh, I grew up cheering for all these teams. So it's been amazing. And, and you know, you listed some names and I could, we could keep going for the rest of the show on, you know, the people who've come through here, the Catherine Tappins and the Randy Scotts. And, uh, you know, people who've gone on, uh, Cole Wright, and had great national careers. Uh, the rest of us get stuck staying here. But, you know, I, I, I'm, I love it here. I mean, this is. It's a great team to cover. It's a great place to work, uh, and there's no place I'd rather be. Yeah, well, there's no place we'd rather have you be either because you are such a huge part of the Red Sox experience. I mean, when you think about the Red Sox, like, you think about the people who are covering the game, too. You're not just thinking about the guys on the field because it's it's all part of the big Red Sox baseball story, and I think that's also, like you said, why fans were defending X because at the time, like, not to get into the whole spiel again, but David Price wasn't pitching well, and he wasn't backing up his talk with anything on the field. And Eck called it like he saw it. He did his job. It wasn't even, it shouldn't even have been a big deal. And that's what we appreciate from you guys, because you know that if you guys weren't doing stuff like that, if you weren't calling it like you saw it, fans would be calling for your heads. Yeah, you wouldn't last. You wouldn't last in this town. Uh, you know, the viewers wouldn't allow you to continue, and uh, a station and network wouldn't allow you to keep going. So. Uh, yeah, no, that's what that's what makes this job great is is you know you're speaking to not just a passionate audience but an educated audience. They know what's going on with the team. They, you know, I don't have to explain that Mookie Betts tonight. We come on the air. I want it to get into the background of Mookie Betts being a great player and being traded. Everybody knows that. Uh, we can just pick it up with what happened today. So uh, always nice to be able to talk to a, an educated fan base because they're right there along with you. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of getting back into it tonight, so before we let you go, I'm curious what your prediction for the Red Sox season is in terms of win-loss record, who you think is going to have a standout season, maybe a comeback season. What do you see happening this year? Yeah, so, you know, I've probably got, I mean, again, it's so hard, right? Uh, Like I keep saying, the most important stat to watch is positive test results, right? Because forget about runs and and ERA, uh, it's who stays healthiest is probably going to have the best chance to win. So that could impact any and all of this and factor into all of this. But if, if things stay like this, I, you know, I think they're probably – they're above a 500 team, maybe not by much, uh, but you don't have to be a lot above 500. So let's give them 32 wins, 32 and 28, which will probably get them in the wild card hunt. Uh, it'll be tough this year because you don't play the other division, so – you know, the teams in the Central or the West, uh, there's some weaker opponents there than you've got a tough schedule here. You know, not only do you get the, the AL East with the Yankees and the Rays, 10 games each, uh, and we saw the Blue Jays can be tough, but, but you're going to face the Nationals and the Braves and the Mets and all their starting pitching. So tough, a tough schedule. So I'll, I'll say 32 wins. I, you know, the guy I think who's going to have a surprise here for a lot of fans will be Jose Peraza, the second baseman. I think he's going to play a lot of second base. Uh, This guy was really hard to strike out, had one of the lowest strikeout rates in the National League over the last few years, Uh, but he never really hit for power. Kind of went the J.D. Martinez route this offseason, reconstructed his swing, keeps his hands back a little, generates a little more power, and at least in spring training and summer camp, as we call it, he's been driving the ball with a lot more power. So I think he uh, will have a really good year. I think Alex Verdugo, uh, would have had a tough time maybe dealing with the pressure of replacing Mookie Betts in right field with the fans, but there's no fans. So maybe he's getting a little benefit. We saw him last night beat out a ground ball with some speed and unlo- unleash a great throw from right field. And, and obviously Devers keeps uh, keeps rolling. So I think Devers has a really good year. Like I said before, I think Andrew Benintendi is going to have a bounce back here. On the mound, we'll see. I mean, I like Ryan Weber, and I think if he can have any kind of success at all, then this team could be better than we expect. Uh, So I'll say he's my pick to click as a pitcher. Uh, But this offense is going to lead the way, and and you hope that you you win enough games when Evaldi and Erod pitch 
and then you can cobble together the bullpen on the other nights. But if you think about it, really, with a 30-game season, you need a couple of hot weeks and then play 500 the rest of the season. If you do that, you'll probably be in the playoffs. Yeah, I don't <laughs> – playoffs just – I don't know about that. I, I would just really like it if they had an above 500 season this year. That's that's pretty much my goal for this team. Um, but before we let you go, we always ask all of our guests their favorite moment their favorite sports memory of their own. And it can be a game you played in, a game you covered, a game you went to, one of your kids' games, like literally anything. But we we love to ask people this because we get so many different answers. Like when we had Keith Folk on, Al and I totally thought his favorite sports memory was going to be game four of the 2004 World Series. He chose a hockey moment from the Olympics. He loves hockey. I talk hockey with him all the time. He does. He's such a hockey (laughs) He really does. But I think he also yeah. said it a little bit just to be a contrarian. So, you know. <laughs> uh, that's so hard because I'm a dad and my kids both play sports. One of them plays in college. Uh, I, I uh, uh, you know, I I played soccer and still have a record in Maine, uh, which is ridiculous after all these years. Uh, but, I, you know, I mean, I'll go with Keith Folk didn't. I mean, watching that ball go back to Folk and have him flip over to Minkiewicz. Uh, the quick story behind that is, you know, when I started in this business, my right out of college was the Bill Buckner game, and I was an anchor on an NBC station in 86, and we had that Bill Buckner game that I had to come on right after. And during that 10th inning, three different times, I started dialing my parents back in New England so that as soon as they won the World Series, I could talk to them before I ran out in studio and did my thing, and each time I had to hang up because they were one strike away, but they never, obviously never got that last strike. So the joke was, you know, someday I'll, I'll call you when it happens. And, and so that was 1986. You fast forward to 2004. Now I'm at Nesson, and back then we were in Fenway Park. That was the old Nesson. We were upstairs in the ballpark. And, you know, they and now we've got cell phones. Right? Back then it was actually a rotary phone with a wire that I was dialing to call my parents. So we're walking out to the studio, and, and the ball goes back to, to Folk, and I hit uh, on my cell phone. I called my parents to to uh, give them a, a quick hello. And uh, so they answer the phone as as the World Series ends, and we get to celebrate for a moment as, as I'm walking out of the studio with Jerry Remy and Dennis Eggersley. And then as I hang up, my phone rings, and it's my wife calling from home with our son, who was eight at the time. So it's funny that uh, – my dad was in his 80s, I was in my 40s, and, and our son was eight, and it was the first World Series for the Red Sox in all three of our lifetimes, which is really remarkable uh, that it was uh, generations that got to celebrate that together. So uh, I'll, I'll put that as my number one moment, even though uh, there have been so many great moments I've got to cover and watch as a dad, and, uh, but that was unforgettable. Oh, I love that. And your son's been spoiled ever since. Well, that's the now they did. You know, when when the when the Pats lost the first Super Bowl to the Giants, my youngest son burst into tears, and my older son was funny. He was like telling them, "Ask Dad. It used to be like this all the time around here. They lose everything." Uh, but these kids today, you kids today, have no idea what it used to be like. I mean, it was 15 years without a championship. Went from the '86 Celtics to the '01 Patriots without a championship team here in Boston, which is crazy now. Yeah, I was born in 94, so I, I really barely remember that time. <laughs> yeah, you were born right towards the end of it. My son was 96, uh, and so he was uh, – he heard the stories, but by, you know, by the time he was four years exactly. old, they were winning left to right. And my other son was born in 2000, so he's known nothing but championships. Literally. Uh, which is, I guess is better. Yeah, hopefully we're not in for a rude awakening in the next few years, but um, we're going to put you nah, on the spot. the Bruins are going to win the cup. The Bruins are going to hey, win the I cup. I hope so, and we'll have to have you on, Celtics honestly. Will go deep. We'll have to have you the on, Celtics honestly, to so talk good. hockey, too, when uh, that finally I'm ramps in. up, because I know no. you're a big hockey guy. But we're going to put you on the guy. spot one last time. We also always have our guests pick our outro song. So. Wow. Uh, anything, anything you want. It should be something baseball related, right? I mean, maybe not. Sweet Caroline. Yeah, I think you don't have to worry about that. You do not have to worry about that. Uh, 
How about George Thorgood, Bad to the Bone, because that was Dennis Eckersley's walk-in music when he came into the ninth inning for the Oakland A's as a closer. How about Bad there to the go. Bone? Oh, I love it so much. <laughs> I was well, actually watching like... Parent Trap the other, the other night, and she walked into Bad to the Bone, and I was like, oh, this is X, <laughs> wow, this is X song. Like, that's, I don't think of it as the Parent Trap song. I think of them using Dennis Eckersley's song in the Parent right, Trap. Right, see? <laughs> Well, and a little known fact, too, back in the garden, they used to play it after Cam Neely had a fight. When he would go to the penalty box, they would play bad to the bone. So there you go. It's a connection for both sports. But I'm not, you know, you can't go shipping up to Boston or any of that. I mean, that's all, that's, that's all overdone. No, those are the cliches. Yeah. You, you brought it deep for us. We, like, we appreciate that. Yeah, well, I mean, thank you. I, and I'm good friends with Ken Casey. Like, I love the dropkicks. I sort of helped them get going on the sports scene here, connected them with the Bruins way back when. Uh, but, but yeah, they've, they've gotten uh, enough, uh, enough attention with that. Well, TC, thanks so much for coming on today to preview the socks with us. Uh, we really appreciated it and best of luck tonight and with the rest of the season. Thanks guys. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Awesome. Bye.